0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Justin Quirk. You can tell a lot about British society from the TV shows on our screens. Perhaps more than any other country, the UK still gets a sense of itself from the output of its national broadcasters. But this country has become more fractious and divided over the past two decades as populist politics has informed the national conversation. So, what can we learn from the TV of the last 20 years? And how has what we've been watching not just reflected, but also shaped the world in which we now live? Joining me today to discuss this is Phil Harrison, TV journalist and author of the recently published The Age of Static, How TV Explains Modern Britain. Welcome to The Bunker, Phil. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. So with the book, what was your starting point here? Was there a particular penny-dropping moment which made you think, hang on, maybe all this light entertainment I've been writing about is actually a (laughs) bit more serious than we thought?
1: I think I wrote a piece for The Quietus website back in about 2014 about The Apprentice, And I think that was the point at which I started thinking, you know, this program chimes in so perfectly with the way we self-brand these days, with the sort of aspirations that so many people seem to have these days. But also the fact that it seemed to get less ludicrous as it went along that show. It was almost sort of um, framed as... uh, (laughs) a comedy almost (laughs) where we would laugh at these people initially, but it felt like it became vaguely aspirational after a while. And I felt like that was a really significant change that we'd almost sort of internalized the values of that show. And then once you start seeing it with something like that, you start seeing it everywhere. Um, The business TV, the sort of poverty porn, the sort of spurious reflections and proclamations of national identity on television, you know, it, it it becomes a sort of um a thing that you see everywhere.
0: And of course you've been a television writer through most of this period that we're discussing. Yeah. Um, and were you were you aware at the time that many of these shows were revealing something quite profound about where we were going as a society, or do you need that kind of twenty years of distance for those things no, to emerge? I think-
1: I think you need a bit of hindsight. I mean, I coincidentally started being a TV journalist in the year 2000. So, you know, the 20 years sort of <laughs> framing device is actually really natural. Mm. But yeah, you know, I don't think I did at the time. I think the first season of Big Brother started in 2000. And I think everyone thought it was quite a, a sort of a frivolous entertainment at the time. And I, you know, in some ways it is, but... I think it did sort of reach out and end up having real world consequences. If not that show itself, then other shows that sort of spawned from it.
0: In the book's introduction, you write that television isn't always taken as seriously as it should be. In fact, it's often unfairly dismissed as the most disposable, least permanent of art forms. But television, perhaps more than any other form, is political. Can you explain what you meant by that?
1: Yeah, I think um, TV is, is something that pretty much all of us engage with. So, um, we all have it in our homes. It comes to us. We don't go to it. So, for example, if you um, choose to see a certain kind of film, if you sort of choose to sort of listen to a certain kind of music, you, you actually sort of seek that out. Whereas TV is a sort of national <laughs> sort of squabbling ground almost, because, you know, whether we like it or not, we all have a stake in, for example, the BBC. So, you know, even if you've got people who define themselves by their sort of hatred of the BBC on ideological grounds or whatever the grounds they are, they are still very much sort of invested in it, even if it's as a means of defining themselves against it almost.
0: You write a lot in the book about the transformative effect that that introduction of reality TV around 2000 had on the cultural landscape. But something you bring up, which I'd actually forgotten about, was how markedly different those first couple of series of Big Brother were. You know, they were quite, Mm. something sort of weirdly quiet and quite slow and contemplative about them. What do you think changed with the show as that went on? I mean, I I was genuinely
1: startled. I watched or rewatched quite a lot of the first season of Big Brother in in the course of researching this. And it's it's genuinely remarkable. It is, there's so much dead air involved and and so so few sort of bells and whistles. And there's something quite quaint about it, actually. They, you know, they are having sort of proper conversations and they're looking after their chickens, and someone thinks they might try and grow vegetables in the garden. And is actually something quite wholesome about it. Um I think. When the Nick Bateman thing happened at the end of the first series, uh, the format was revealed for what it really is and was, which was conflict based Mm. and, you know, a means of sort of establishing binary rights and wrongs. And I think you also saw how certain character types could do very well out of it and um, certain other ones wouldn't.
0: And do you think that was something which came from the producers as it was a ratings-driven thing, or was it that the show started to attract a different kind of person and kind of developed its own language?
1: I think it's probably a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, um, I'm sure people were eventually chosen for that show on the basis of their their likely sort of telegenic qualities in terms of like... Causing conflicts and stuff. Hmm. By the end of Big Brother, there was they were really a type, weren't they? They they were of a very specific demographic grouping, and they were there to sort of push each other's buttons in a way. Hmm. Whereas at the start, you really sort of genuinely felt like an attempt had been made to um, find a cross section of the country. Almost
0: one of the strengths of the book is that you don't just go for the obvious, easy targets. And as much as you write about you know things like Jeremy Kyle, you also keep, I think some critical distance on shows which often get a free pass from people like us. When you write a length about brass eyes, PDF special, um, that I thought was really interesting because that's always been defended by progressives Mm. as bold genius bit of TV. I think you give it a, I would say a markedly more balanced assessment. How do you think that show looks after 20 years?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a product of a slightly more flippant era, isn't it? Um, I, 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 I mean, I, think, I don't think you can deny the sort of the comedy genius of it, or indeed the sort of um the way it's assembled is is utterly incredible. It's a remarkable piece of TV, but I do feel like Chris Morris's sort of moral and comedy um instinct sort of jostles for space at various points in it. And there is a sort of ruthlessness and a, a sort of brutality, particularly to the Peter Geddon
0: one, mm. which can be a bit troubling. Was there anything which genuinely shocked you when you went back to say, you know, assuming you were watching hours of this stuff going back through the archives. Um, the section I was reading really on Jeremy Kyle, I mean, that really stuck out to me as something which you struggle to believe. We just accepted that as normal daytime entertainment.
1: Yeah, I mean, the um, the end of Jeremy Kyle I was writing it, actually. And um, when I started writing it, ITV had packaged on YouTube all these little sort of highlights reels basically of like nastiest arguments and worst fights and things like that and when the um the suicide of the um participant happened they removed all those immediately from youtube Mm -hmm. and you sort of thought to yourself see they knew they knew this was terrible didn't they (laughs) on some level they were deliberately exploiting everyone's sort of very worst instincts and you know to do so in such a conscious way is shocking really the other thing that really appalled me is um a bbc reality show called britain's hardest worker in which zero hours contract workers were basically pitted against each other in a sort of reality tv scenario and there was something almost you wouldn't have written that in a dystopian fantasy but yet and yet it happened and um it was genuinely shocking to watch and you know that's In a way, that's where the tropes of reality TV led us, I guess.
0: And do you think that was, I mean, obviously you say these shows are both a product of their time and they're a reflection of, you know, the culture they come out of. Mm. Was there just something in the ether at the time where there was an appetite for that kind of cruelty? Because again and again, you pick up in the book, you know, these shows, you know, there's like, benefit street is probably another example Mm. there was you know and even shows that weren't specifically aiming in that way like you know the ones around jamie's school dinners and things where there's this very clear delineation into sort of like deserving poor people undeserving poor people you know scroungers hard workers um why do you think there was that because these weren't weird little niche shows i mean these were huge ratings busting shows why do you think the appetite was there
1: I've got a feeling that the way working class people are portrayed on TV has changed quite a lot since, for example, the 70s, which which was a much more sort of economically equal era. Mm. But also, you know, unions were stronger, there was more social housing. Everyone was just a little bit more sort of connected across the classes, it seems to me. Whereas in the noughties, you had the emergence of what became known as the underclass. And they became people who, it was somehow kind of okay to sneer at, or it had been become normalised to sneer at them. And I think you know you had things like Little Britain, you had, um, as you say, Benefit Street, you had um, a show like Shameless, which kicked against that rather brilliantly, I thought, and and sort of gave it a much more nuanced reading. Hmm. But I don't know. I think it's it's just like the, the winners and losers of neoliberal capitalism, isn't it really? Um, The idea that that you will find your way out of poverty if if you're a good enough person, if you work hard enough, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But it doesn't work like that.
0: You mentioned Little Britain there before. I mean, we talk a lot about how culture generally has become much more aware in the last few years of issues around diversity and inclusion. How do you think British television has reflected that? Is it making the progress... It should be. It's funny. I mean, if I, if I have one slight regret about the book,
1: it's that I missed just about missed um, the opportunity to write about "I May Destroy You," which I think almost feels like an implicit answer to a, one of the questions that I sort of ask in that book, which is, "Will would we ever have a sort of a black female working class version of Fleabag, for example?" And I'm not saying it is that, mm. but I'm saying that's a show that allows its main protagonist much more agency and much more sort of self-determination than anything else I can think of in in recent memory. And sort of um, working class people always have a hard landing in, in TV and therefore, you know, you don't get any nuance to their stories. There's very few shades of grey in terms of telling working class stories on television. Whereas I think Fleabag's nuance partly comes from the fact that she gets to make so many mistakes and gets to sort of um, have a second and third and fourth and fifth chance. Sure, and I, I, I think, I think, I think, I made a story was really useful and really and, and genuinely brilliant show as well, but just a really good step towards sort of setting that right a
0: bit. Mm. It felt like, I mean, it feels like in the last couple of years we have crossed something of a line in terms of awareness around those issues um Mm. was there much you were looking at when you were working on the book which suddenly seemed very dated i mean the the obvious example you mentioned little britain i mean that (laughs) felt like it got reassessed within about three years of being broadcast and a lot of it wouldn't go out nowadays i don't think but were there other sort of things that (sighs) stuck out from that era as probably being consigned to the dustbin of history
1: that's interesting. I don't suppose you'd even... I'd, something like Sisses and Calm, for example, the, um, the the sort of Muslim family sitcom, it was a perfectly well-meaning show, but I'm not sure that would get, get made now. Right. And I'm not sure it should be made now, really, because <laughs> it, it just feels really box-ticky to me. And I don't think shows like that really help move the debate along.
0: <laughs> There's an excellent chapter on the travails of the BBC over the last 20 years from Savile through Iraq... Nick Griffin on Question Time, climate change coverage, impartiality in news. It's not the most glowing account of the corporation, and I think more so because it's obviously written from a place of love rather than hostility. Um, Just how bad has this last fifteen to twenty years been for them? Do you think? (laughs) It's hard to think it could have
1: gone much worse, isn't it? Really, Um, and you know they're never solely the architect of their own misfortunes. The BBC. Um, There are so many people who wish them ill. And um, it's a very sad thing about our society and our sort of political um, ecosystem as well. But they do make a rod for their own back repeatedly. And I think quite a lot of their mistakes actually come from their unwillingness to hold a position. I mean, the the, the stuff about Nagam and Shetty, um, calling out Donald Trump's racism, where the BBC threw under the bus, then picked her out from under the bus again, then threw under again. (laughs) It was almost like they didn't quite dare say what was obviously true, which was those were racist comments. Hmm. So they ended up making it much, much worse for themselves and sort of upsetting everyone.
0: And do you think that repeated pattern, is that a structural issue about the BBC or is it to do with the people that are in particular positions of authority? Is it a feature or a bug? I think it's
1: probably a feature but I think it's a feature of the sort of unique place that they occupy in our culture in that they are constantly answerable to sort of vested interests on all sides and I think in a weird sort of way maybe BBC, the BBC needs to be surrounded by that permanent level of conflict and maybe if it's not it's not doing its job in a way because you know it needs to be a place where we are all confronted by ideas that we aren't necessarily particularly comfortable with. And it might just be that that's, that's its role.
0: <laughs> yeah. And what what state do you think it's in currently and where mm. do you think its future is likely to go, particularly with regards to things like the licence fee and the charter? It's a good question. I, I, I mean, I have to say Nadine Dorries
1: as Culture Secretary scares the hell out of me because mm. um, there is something about her that makes me think she might almost be a sort of kamikaze culture minister. She obviously has so much of a problem with the, the whole concept of public service broadcasting that I suspect she might almost have been put in place to undermine the BBC. Yeah. Um, it's ju- I think it's just a question of getting through these next few years for the BBC actually, and and sort of retaining whatever semblance of sort of impartiality it can. The problem seems to me to be that it's now under attack from all sides, and not entirely unjustifiably sometimes. Lots of the people who would have defended it, say, 30 years ago, now also have a problem with aspects of its coverage. And, you know, that's a very hard place to find yourself in.
0: And not just the BBC, but television more generally, as you write, over the last 20 years has struggled deal with the sort of shifts in our social and political landscape around how we deal Mm. with post-truth culture with deliberate misinformation around climate or elections or covid um is the medium more widely learning to navigate that landscape do you think
1: i think it probably is actually i mean the consumers of media are getting better at navigating it as well i think it has to be a sort of um a hand-in-hand thing where we we all sort of try and cooperate and work out how to do this collectively. I mean, we are going to have to learn to live with sort of disinformation, aren't we? And I I think part of the reason things like Brexit and Trump happened was people may not even have been aware that they were living with disinformation. And I think knowing about it is perhaps half the battle. But, um, you know, there'll, there'll be better qualified people than me to talk about how this covert stuff works. But I just think... There are things that the BBC, for example, could do in terms of, I mean, for example, they could stop running live political interviews. I think that would be a brilliant thing to do. and, and run this, them... this is
0: one of your suggestions in the book. Yeah. Can you elaborate on this a bit? Because that struck me as, that would be a huge kind of paradigm shift in terms of the way we cover the news.
1: I think it would be wildly controversial, but I think if you could um, fact check them first and then run them with um, an audit of, of the facts underneath, then it would be very controversial and it would upset a lot of people short-term, but it probably would help eventually. It probably would mean people were less willing to go on there and try and get away with untruths. And I think the BBC could probably do that in a way that another channel maybe couldn't. Um, I think there's a general problem, and I would say Question Time has been particularly guilty of this, of searching for sort of sensation above sober presentation of the facts. Um, when Mentor took over Question Time, the production company, they promised adrenaline-packed Thursday nights. And I'm not sure that should be the main priority of a serious news show. I'm not sure that serves our our purpose very well. So, yeah.
0: After five years, I think I could certainly do with less adrenaline in our, exactly. in our body.
1: Politics. Yeah, can we just take the adrenaline out of this a bit, please?
0: <laughs> and on a on a more positive note when you weren't um watching hideous reruns of question <laughs> time with nick griffin or 18 hours of big brother live feeds with bubble and <laughs> david uh from 2002 um what did you rediscover that you thought were real kind of lost treasures what uh, what would you recommend the listeners go and dig out again i mean
1: the the, the obvious one which struck me is like a way of of, of exploring national identity in a way that is gentle and inclusive and just generally goddamn perfect is The Detectorists, which, I mean, I think think time will um, be very kind to that show. I think, you know, it seemed like quite a slight sitcom at first about two sort of like quirky losers almost, but I think it's genuinely visionary and genuinely beautiful, that show. And there's something so sort of modest about it, but so sort of, Com- comfortable in his own skin almost um and i, I you know it, it bears repeated viewing that show and i think it's a bit of a sort of all-time gem actually
0: at the other end of the spectrum the one that i'd completely completely bypassed me and you wrote about brilliant was a uh, south
1: oh god yeah yeah i mean an incredible show um it's it's i mean it's one of the the bleakest things that's ever been um, broadcast in prime time i would have thought that show um, the first episode of it where the spree killing happens is is stunning. Um, but it's just such a brilliant dissection of that sort of um, r- rural v. urban sort of conflict that we have in British life at the moment that seems to underpin so many of our issues,
0: and just finally, with the festive hmm. season approaching, I presume you've uh, got your Christmas radio times. You've been going through it with the highlighter, planning ahead. What uh, What are you most looking forward to over the festive TV period? Then this is terrible, but I really haven't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, <come on. laughs> I, know. No, I never really watched telly at
1: Christmas because um it's like Mrs. Brand's Boys Christmas Special. Um, Call the Midwife is incredibly bleak, as always, um, Christmas Day. Um, it's amazing how bleak Christmas tally is, actually.
0: <laughs> I, I think it was the, uh, the EastEnders domestic violence episode, probably. That was where yeah, the, yeah. the tone changed, I think, and since then, never come back.
1: There was an episode
0: of Emmerdale
1: where, like, a plane crashed into the pub or something. It's like, why would you do that on Christmas Day? It's just crazy. It's like an arms race to see who can make their show bleakest. But, yeah,
0: very strange. Well, we'll all be settling down to watch the old VHS of Threads on December 25th around (laughs) at Phil's.
1: Watch watch Southcliffe on Christmas Day. That'll (laughs) do it for you.
0: Phil Harrison, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers, Justin. Phil Harrison's book, The Age of Static, How TV Explains Modern Britain, is out now in all good bookshops published by Melville House. And thank you for listening to The Bunker. If you enjoyed this episode, you can back us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Bunker Daily. Thanks for listening and goodbye.
1: The Bunker is presented by Justin Quirk, produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Yelena Sofanaevich and Jacob Archbold. An audio production came from me, Robin Lieberman.
0: Our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.